Well, we are in John 3, John 3, verses 9 through 15, what James just read for us. If you have a Bible, it'd be helpful to have it open, uh, partially because there's no guarantee that the projector won't go out again. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump back in a moment. Lord, thank you. We believe, Lord, that you are sovereign over all things, and that includes projector issues. We believe, Lord, that you work all things for good, and that includes projector issues. And Lord, we believe that you speak to us through your word, and that we are not dependent upon our performance or upon our perfection. We are dependent upon Christ. So Lord, I pray that as we hear from your word, that Lord, you would show us Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. The Bible is one book. So most of us, now years ago, there would have been a lot of different scrolls that people would have had, but we have the printing press and we have the ability to carry around a Bible that is a single book. And yet the Bible is also many books. It's made up of smaller books. If you're new to Christianity, You've probably felt this as you've opened the Bible and you realize, what are these different books? They have different authors and different styles. They're written over different periods of time. Some of them are written in a more Greek sort of way. Others seem very, very ancient. The Bible has different writing styles, different genres, and yet it's one book. And that's because ultimately the Bible is God's book. He is the author. It is true that men wrote the Bible, but men wrote the Bible moved by God the Holy Spirit, which means we should expect the Bible to have a coherent message, to have a unified message. God does not change. He does not have wrong ideas that need correcting. He doesn't write something in the beginning and say, oh, you know, I should have fixed that. I'm going to fix it later on. God is perfect. He does not have contradictions. So while there's different books of the Bible, they come together. Now, things may be less clear to us in the beginning than when we unfold the Bible and we see it later on, but that's the way a story works. We know this even from human books, series like the Harry Potter series or the Lord of the Rings once you read it in the beginning, you may miss things. You don't recognize the significance of certain things. But as the story unfolds, you see what those hints in the beginning were pointing to. And though for any of us who've gone back and reread a book, often we can go back in the beginning and see, ah, there's stuff there. There's stuff there that I didn't see because I didn't know how the story would fully unfold. The Bible is like that, but in order to read the Bible and to grasp the meaning, you have to read the Bible rightly, and many of us don't, and the reason is because many of us refuse to believe the Bible. We refuse to read the Bible on its own terms. This morning, we're looking at John 3, 9 through 15, what James just read for us, and the sermon is titled, The Old Testament Witness to the object of faith, because I want you to see who Jesus is. I want you to see that who Jesus is and what Jesus says is not a change in the sense of moving different directions. 
in God's story. What Jesus has come to do and what Jesus says is a development. It is progression. It is the same story unfolding with greater clarity because the main character is on the scene and we can look to him. And we're going to look at two points from this passage as we work through it. First, we're going to look at the barrier of unbelief, and then we're going to look at the object of faith. The barrier of unbelief, the object of faith. Let's first look at the barrier of unbelief. If you're going to read the Bible the right way, you have to know what it says. And there's something that's going to keep you. It's unbelief. If you approach the Bible without faith, you will not see. Last week, we saw that Jesus taught that you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. If you are going to see the kingdom of God, you can't be born once. No one is born naturally into the kingdom of God. We are born again by the Spirit. It's a supernatural work. It comes by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And Nicodemus teacher of the law. We met him last week. Nicodemus doesn't understand that. He doesn't grasp how that fits together. And as a teacher of Israel, one who is responsible to teach the Old Testament to the people of God, Nicodemus should have understood it. Jesus shows him that. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? Jesus' question to Nicodemus, it reveals an assumption that Jesus has. Jesus assumes that what he has been saying in verses 1 through 8 of the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, causing people to be born again, born of water and of the Spirit, that thing that Jesus has been saying is in the Old Testament. The book that Nicodemus had, that he is a teacher of, contained that message. So Nicodemus should have known it. The reason why Jesus can assume that is because it is in the Old Testament. We saw that last week with Ezekiel 36. If you have a Bible open, you can turn there, Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. God says, I will take you, Israel, from the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules." A little bit later in Ezekiel 37, God says it again, I will put my spirit within you and you will live. And it's not just Ezekiel that says it. Jeremiah 31, God says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And even further back in Israel's history in Deuteronomy 30, in the law itself, God says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. 
So the Old Testament, over and over and over again, points to the fact that God's people need something to happen where? Inside of them. They do not nearly, merely need to have their circumstances changed. They do not need to merely fix their problems outside of them. They have problems inside of them that need to be addressed. They need to experience something inside them. They need to receive something inside of them. And that's the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. They need to have God's law written on their lawless hearts. They need to have their hard heart taken out and replaced with a living, soft, beating heart. They need to be born again. Nicodemus should have known that, and yet he didn't. Why is that? Many of, my, many of our cultures, including my own culture, assume that the way to fix people's problem is through re-education. It's through teaching them knowledge. People need knowledge in order to be better people. Right, we see this. I'm, I follow the National Basketball Association. Um, I uh, don't know if you do, but in the NBA, there was a player recently suspended because he posted a link to a documentary that contained racist and hateful beliefs. He posted it, and he was suspended by his team. And what was the process for him to get back in to be able to play basketball? He had to go through a re-education process. His, his issue was that he is naive. He's uninformed. He needs to educate himself. And so he had to go and learn. According to the NBA, what people need is knowledge and education. That's the solution to racism. But education doesn't actually change hate. <laughs> Many of us know that. How many of us have gone to someone's profile online that we really don't like and we're looking for more reasons to hate them? <laughs> we are seeking out information because we hate them and we want to use it against them. Many of history's greatest villains have been incredibly intelligent people. They were able to ascend to power because they were the smartest person in the room. They were the most persuasive speakers. They did know more than everyone else around them. And yet, they were villains. Education is not the solution. Knowledge is important, but education is not enough. In and of itself, it's not going to change you. Nicodemus did not understand what Jesus was saying, not because he didn't know the Bible verses Jesus was referencing. Nicodemus didn't understand because he didn't believe what Jesus was saying. Listen to verses 12, 10 through 12. Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of the law, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus did not understand because Nicodemus did not believe. He did not receive Jesus' testimony. Jesus is speaking of how to get into the kingdom of God. 
Right? That's what he means when he says, if I have told you earthly things, in our Bible study this last week, we looked at this and we're like, wait, wait, how is this talking about earthly things if it's talking about the kingdom of God? Well, it's talking about earthly things because it's talking about the gracious work of the Holy Spirit that happens here on earth in our lives, causing us to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says, I've told you how to get into the kingdom of God, and you don't even understand it, how will you understand life in the kingdom of God? If you don't understand what it's like to get off a plane, how do you understand what it's like to live in the country? Nicodemus wouldn't understand it because he would not believe. He was putting himself, him and his Pharisees, they were putting himself in a position to reject Jesus' teaching. Hey, Gimba, can we just turn the projector off? Just unplug it. It would be great. If you place yourself above the Bible, if you come to the Bible and you stand over it looking down, then you will miss out on the glory of what the Bible actually says. You'll be like a food critic who's standing over the dishes that are put before him, who sees it and is criticizing that steak. It's a little bit off-center. Right? Those mashed potatoes, they don't quite look like they're plated well. There's a little bit of a mess. You have a spot right there. They're standing over the dish and they're judging it, but they're never sitting down to taste it. Who cares what food looks like on the plate? It's what it tastes like that's going to nourish you, that's going to feed you. If you come to the Bible standing over it, you're like that food critic. In order to feast on the scripture, you have to read it in faith. It's when we come to the Bible for food that we taste for ourselves and we see that the Lord is good. J.C. Ryle, uh, an English pastor in the 1800s, he gave counsel for how to read the Bible. He wrote this. He said, read the Bible with childlike faith and humility. Open your heart as you open your book and say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Resolve to believe whatever you find there, however much it may run counter to your own prejudices. Resolve to receive heartily every statement of truth, whether you like it or not. Beware of that miserable habit of mind in which some readers of the Bible fall. They receive some doctrines because they like them. They reject others because they are condemning to themselves or some lover or relation or friend. At this rate, the Bible is useless. Don't place yourself above the Bible. Don't go to it as the one who determines what is true and what is false. Truth is true, whether you like it or not. Your feeling about a truth doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it wrong. Come to the Bible ready to receive what it says in humility. Come to feast and believe. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with the text of Scripture. We should wrestle with it. We should ask questions of it and say, well, how does that fit with this? And how does that fit with this? And when he says this, what does this mean? But we come seeking understanding because we want to believe rather than coming wanting to find reasons not to believe. The barrier of unbelief keeps people from understanding the word. But if this is true, 
then what do we need to believe in order to rightly understand? And that leads to our next point, the object of faith. In verse 13, Jesus shows why we should listen to him. We should listen to him because he has authority that no one else has. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus can speak of heavenly things from firsthand experience. We can't, but Jesus can. He has experienced heavenly things because he has descended from heaven. And here he's alluding to Proverbs 30, which Pastor John opened our service with. Listen to Proverbs 30 again. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? This is talking about the wisdom of God and the uniqueness of God. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? The answer that you're supposed to get from Proverbs 30 verse 4 is no mere human has done that. But Jesus is no mere human. Jesus can descend from and ascend to heaven because he made both heaven and earth. Both are his home. (laughs) Jesus can gather up the wind and wrap the waters in a garment because he controls the wind and the waters. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. In John 1, it says that all things were made through him, and apart from him was not anything made that was made. Proverbs 34, this who has done this, is supposed to lead us to say, Jesus has done this. Jesus alone has done this, and we should therefore listen to him because he is unique. His name is Jesus. And then Jesus goes on to reference Daniel 7, talking about himself as the son of man, to show that he is the one who comes from heaven with sovereign authority that demands us to listen. In verse 2, Nicodemus says that Jesus is a teacher come from God. But Nicodemus doesn't know the half of it. Jesus comes from God not because he's a mere man sent from God, Jesus is a teacher come from God because Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh, dwelling on earth. You should believe what Jesus says because he's utterly unique. But he's not only unique in his testimony, not only in what he says, he's also unique in the fact that he is the only one that we experience life through. Listen to verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent on the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, Jesus goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to Numbers 21, which Pastor John read, and he says, look, I am the one that you should believe in. In Numbers 21, we read that God is disciplining his people for grumbling against him. I'm going to read this again so you can hear it. God's already by this point in time, he's already delivered his people from slavery. 
They were slaves to Egypt, and he set them free. He's already provided for them manna and water from the rock. He has protected them from other nations attacking them, and yet they still grumbled in disbelief. Listen to verse 4 of Numbers 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses, and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and live. Numbers 21 shows a pattern, and that's what Jesus is referencing Jesus says there is a pattern in Numbers 21 to show us how God is going to heal the world. One of the ways that we can read the Old Testament, if you've ever been confused in knowing how do you approach the Old Testament, it feels so different than the New Testament. One of the ways that you can read the Old Testament is not just looking for direct prophecies, prophecies like Ezekiel 36, prophecies like Daniel 7, like Deuteronomy 30. Don't just read looking for prophecies but also read looking for patterns, looking for ways that God relates to his covenant people, the way that God relates to unbelievers in the world, the way that God relates to his creation. The Old Testament, it's not simply a set of rules. It's not simply an ancient story. It's instruction. It's showing us over and over and over again patterns in how a personal God relates to a sinful people. God is both just and merciful. We see that in the Old Testament. He is slow to anger and yet willing to pour out his wrath on sin. His slowness to anger does not keep him from eventually judging. He provides what he requires, and he reveals himself through his word. We should pay attention to these patterns, patterns like Numbers 21 that I just read, because through these patterns, they teach us what to look for in the New Testament. Numbers 21, Israel suffered the consequences of their sin. They rebelled against God and his word, and they rightly, justly suffered for it. God was just to send fiery serpents. And yet in his grace, God provides a means of healing. He calls for Moses to create a bronze serpent, which by the way, every time they would look, they're reminded of the consequence of their sin. Their sin led to a snake biting them. They had to look and be reminded of that. Moses creates a bronze serpent. He lifts it up the pole. And how are the people healed? By turning and looking in faith, as Pastor John reminded us. In the same way, we suffer the consequences for our own sin. We are absolutely guilty before God, every one of us, because we have all rebelled against God and his word. 
our sin tears apart our relationships. We see that. Why can't you relate to certain members of your family? Why can't you relate in peace with different people? It's because our sin tears us apart. Our sin leads to our ultimate death. It corrupts our desires. We want the wrong things because we are sinful. We are completely guilty before God. And yet God in his mercy provides healing. Jesus descends from heaven in order to be lifted up on a cross. What was the cross? It was the death penalty. Jesus on the cross reminds us the wages of sin is death. The penalty that sin deserves is death. And how are we healed? By looking to Jesus. By being reminded of that. And not running away from it, but turning to Jesus in faith. He is lifted up on the cross in order to die in the place of sinners. The healing that Jesus provided is far greater than healing from a snake bite. It is healing from the thing that is worst about you, your sin, that will lead to your eventual death. And verse 15 shows us that whoever, it's not just the people of Israel, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. We are healed eternally by turning and looking to Jesus, by receiving him, by feasting upon him, in faith. We can so easily place our objects of faith in other things other than Jesus. We can say that we believe in Jesus in church, but we live as if other things are what we really need, that other things are the most important thing in our life. One pastor writing many years ago diagnosed this problem. He said, the crown of gold cannot cure the headache. The things we look for in life can't even bring about earthly relief. You can have a crown of gold on your head. The headache's not going to go away. The velvet slippers cannot ease the gout, nor the jewel about the neck take away the pain of the teeth. We know that the new iPhone is not going to cure our loneliness. We know that the new job is not going to keep us from cancer. We know that the new car is not going to save us from troubles. And yet, so many of us live for those things. That's what we obsess about. That's what we plan for our future as what we need most. All my problems will be better if I just get a divorce and get a new wife. That'll fix everything. All my situations will be resolved if I can just get to Canada or the United States. Everything that I need will go away if I can just get the next promotion. But those things won't keep you from suffering, even earthly loss. And if that's the case, then why would we live for them and keep them so that they keep us from entering the kingdom of God because they blind us to seeing who Jesus truly is? As miraculous as modern medicine is, it has never defeated death permanently. At best, it has postponed it. 
But Jesus has done something that no one else has. He has killed death and provided eternal life. And how does that become yours? It's by believing. To believe in Jesus as the object of our faith means not only to know true things about Jesus, but to trust him. To live as if Jesus is your object of faith when you think about a phone or you think about a car or you think about a job. When the Israelites were bitten by a snake, they were faced with a choice. Do they run to the doctor to provide them with healing? Do they try to suck the venom out themselves and give them a better chance of life? Or do they do the thing that everyone around them would think is utterly foolish? And that is look to someone else to be able to provide their life. What do we do when we see our own sin and our own need for healing? When we recognize that we are not perfect people, what do we do with it? Do we try to cover it and paper over it? Do we try and hide it and keep it in the dark lest someone else finds out? Do we cover it up? Do we minimize it by comparing ourselves to others? Do we say, yeah, my snake bite was really bad, but David's was huge. That was a giant snake that bit David. Well, you're both going to die. <laughs> Minimizing sin will not work. Justifying yourself will not work. Trying to pay it off is foolish. You've been bitten by a snake. What do you need to do? More good deeds. You're going to die. You're going to die unless you turn away from yourself. You stop looking at what you can do to fix your situation. And you look at what God has done in Christ to relieve you. Redeemer Alain exists to show people that message. To tell people over and over again to stop trying to find their life in their stuff. Stop trying to find your life in your status. Stop trying to find life in your society. And instead find life in your Savior. Look to Jesus and live. If you want to know what to pray for for our church, pray for that. Pray that every person in our church would believe this with every bit of our being. That when Satan tempts us to find life in anything other than Christ, we would reject it because we know it's a lie. We have tasted and seen from the scriptures itself that it's life for us. Pray that we would be people more shaped by the scriptures than by the world. And pray that we would preach this message. There are many people in this city who don't know that. They don't know that the way that they obtain life is by coming to Jesus. And we exist in order to show people that message. When we read the Bible, we see that it is a message that God has written to us about Jesus. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, Throughout the pages of the New Testament, we see a story that leads to Christ. Sometimes there's direct pointers. Sometimes there's patterns. But it all exists in order to show us Christ and to say, look to him. Receive him. Believe in him. Turn away from what you would find life in outside of him 
and run to him as your refuge. Every promise is purchased by him. All blessings come to us from him. Jesus is Daniel's son of man. He is Moses' bronze serpent. He is the savior of the world. So run to Jesus and find life in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for the good news of the gospel that we do not do anything in order to earn our salvation. We don't do anything in order to create life in ourselves. It is all from you. So Lord, we pray that you would give us faith to believe what you have said. May we not reject it, but may we receive it in trust. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.